Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. The grass withers and the flower fades. Thank you, Jackie. I remember being curled up in a ball in my office weeping. It was the summer of 2018, and I had just been interviewed for a podcast that had promised they wanted to model for Christians what respectful engagement looks like. During the podcast, which was supposed to be 30 minutes but lasted an hour, they did not let me finish a single sentence. They abused me. They verbally assaulted me. They yelled at me. They scolded me. They kept changing the subject continually, and at the very end, they outed me in front of thousands of people. And I felt so violated, shamed, humiliated. I stayed in my office for another hour trying to compose myself, uh, trying to figure out an escape plan to get out the building with nobody seeing me, making my way across the upper balcony of the auditorium and down, all the way down to the basement and up behind the dumpster to try to make it to my car. 2018 will always be the worst year of my life. It was the year in which false reports about me and my friends spread online, in which there were attacks on blogs, uh, uh, misinformation, slander, suspicion, scrutiny, uh, friends of mine avoiding me, friends of mine distancing themselves from me and from my church, false reports being passed on, me spending 20 hours a week for six months just trying to correct misinformation, knowing that every Christian blogger that I reached out to with accurate information would then post another one slandering me even more and not correcting the falsehood. I saw the underbelly of evangelicalism in America, and it was toxic and putrid and unchristlike and evil. And all of that evil was coming my way. I tried to protect some of you from it so that, so that I could project the, 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 the calm, non-anxious presence. But inwardly, I was being brutalized. I remember every night I go out on my terrace uh, just to pray. And I remember crying almost every night. There was not a day that went by that at some point I wasn't finding myself traumatized and breaking down. It was the worst year of my life. My presbytery described it as a cascade of evil being poured down upon me. We all experience suffering. We all experience sorrow and affliction. And unless you have encased yourself in a coffin of hardness, you know something about tears. For me, this is not a philosophical question about the nature of evil. 
whether you're a Christian or whether you're an atheist, suffering is a universal experience we all share. We feel loss. We feel the hole it left. We feel the pain that fills it. And for the believer in Jesus, we're left wondering, God, why did you let this happen? Why did you not stop this? Why do I have to go through this? Are you there, God? Do you care? Are there gospel resources to help us face the pain and the tears of affliction? What are we supposed to do with our tears? It seems they fall to the ground and they are no more. They soak in and it's a past thing. What can help, what can help you climb out of bed on the worst day of your life? How does the gospel of Jesus speak into our suffering, speak into our tears? This morning we're beginning a letter. It's a letter from James, not James the Apostle, but most likely James, the brother of Jesus, who was a leader of the church in Jerusalem in the first century. He was prominent in the New Testament. Paul visited him on multiple occasions. Um, And as a Jewish follower of Jesus in a highly persecuted Jewish church in the Jewish capital of Jerusalem, the center of power that was opposed to him and his people, James knew about setbacks and losses and tears and trials of every kind. We're going to read what he speaks, what he writes to his people because it's also the word of God for us. This is James chapter 1. We're going to read the first 18 verses. Follow along with me. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he has to believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man shouldn't think he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's he's double-minded man. He's unstable in all he does. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wildflower. The, the sun rises with scorching heat and, and withers the plant. It blo- its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. And in the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God's tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he he tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he's dragged away and enticed, and then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. 
Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that he might be a kind of first fruits of all he has created. What do we see here from James, the brother of Jesus? First of all, we see a call to invest your tears He even talks about pure joy. He says, consider it pure joy when you face these trials of many kinds. It seems counterintuitive to find joy in the midst of hardship or tears and obstacles, confusion, temptation, challenges, losses. It doesn't make sense on first reading. So what's going on here? What's what's going on is that there is a vertical investment that's in view here. Uh, He even says in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. He's saying we should be praying our tears, saying, God, I don't know what's going on here. I just know it hurts. What am I supposed to do with this, Lord? Psalm 126 says those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. You see, a, a farmer, if he, if he takes all of his seed and he, he, he just stores it in a shed or he dumps it all in one place, you know, there's not going to be a harvest because it's not invested. It's not planted into the ground. We shouldn't deny our tears. We shouldn't dump our tears, but, but see them as an opportunity for growth, an opportunity to experience something of the embrace of our God of grace. Tears give way to joy, Psalm 30, or 2 Corinthians 4, where Paul says, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So how do we invest our tears? Well, you can pray them. You know, many Christians are uncomfortable with feelings, even sorrow and loss. You know, I, I was raised to be a white man in America, and so I know how to stuff my emotions better than anybody. And, and yet, that's not actually investing the pain. That's not investing the tears. That's storing them away. That's stuffing them down. Uh, and, and yet, there's also another way that a, a lot of... Uh, um, a lot of folks in the world tend to think that, you know, feelings are things that you always need to express. You just need to throw them everywhere, dump them everywhere. And yet, yet the scriptures give us this third way that's not suppressing them and not dumping them, but rather responding to our emotions by praying our emotions, praying our feelings, praying our sorrows, praying our tears. How do we pray our tears? Um, As we pray them, they can be used to soften rather than harden our hearts. When we pour them into prayer, it has the potential to transform not only our situation as God hears our prayers and acts, but but to change us, change our own experience, our own hearts, because it's at those places of of greatest brokenness that Jesus meets us. He meets us uh, not so much in our triumphs, but in our weaknesses, in our helplessness, in our loss, and in our tears got a slide here. I, I showed this about five years ago. This is um, Lauren Scruggs. Uh, Lauren Scruggs was an aspiring model and fashion designer. Um, she had, had just been discovered. Uh, she got her first big break, and, and she really prioritized physical beauty and appearance. She was loved and photographed and adored for her beauty. 
And on Saturday, December 3rd of 2011, uh, her plane landed in an airport in McKinney, Texas. Uh, It was a a little turboprop. Uh, She remembers looking out and seeing the Christmas lights down below during the flight. Yet as she entered that flight, she had a a huge sense of dread come over her. She was pretty sure, uh, just intuitively, that something wasn't right, uh, that, that she was actually surprised when the plane landed because she thought for sure they were going to crash and it was going to be the end of her. And so they landed, and as she was exiting, she turned the wrong direction. They had said turn left. She turned right, and she walked straight into a spinning propeller. Her mom remembered seeing her unmoving on the tarmac face down in a pool of blood paramedics arrived and told her mom that she wasn't going to make it, and even if she did, she would never speak again, and she would never be the same. She had severed a hand. She lost an eye, broke a collarbone, and had a major traumatic brain injury. And that day, she was in surgery for eight hours. It would be months before she would be able to speak again and months longer before she would able, be able to walk. She received three prosthetic hands, one prosthetic eye. She has scars and has to wear hair extensions to cover the areas where it won't regrow. Her mom said this, As a mom, you never dream that your child is going to go through something like this. I couldn't give her hand back to her. I could not save her eye. There was nothing I could do to change it. At first, Lauren was angry, and then came despair. She says, I thought I was ugly, and that no guy would ever love me, and I just thought that my life was ruined. And yet, it's at that point that Jesus met her, there in her tears. And the accident she says, has transformed the way she sees herself and her God-given mission in life. She says she realizes that there are more important things now in her life than the way she looks. She says this, she says, I think I'm seeing that this life is way bigger than me and that I can think a lot of things that I, and I think a lot of things that I held important earlier in my career were actually quite shallow. She continues, I just want to use what I've been through to talk to young girls, to let them know that our appearances are not what define us. Even just insecurities that we hold on to, they don't define us. She says, I would not trade my experience for anything. If I were writing the story of my life, I would not take that part out of it because God was working there. And I know Jesus now like I never knew him before. We've got another photo a more recent one. This is of her wedding day. Years later, when she married uh, E! Entertainment News host Jason Kennedy, who ran a Bible, had a Bible study in his home, they're both believers. Uh, God has redeemed her tears because he met her in her tears. That's good. Uh, thank you. Uh, there's a call here to invest our tears, and we can invest our tears because we're always in the process of becoming. Uh, 
we're always in the process of, of becoming the people we're going to be. That's what James is, is getting at in verse 3 and 4 when he talks about how testing of our faith, these trials and tears and suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance has to finish its work so that we can become what? Mature, whole, complete, not lacking anything. You see, we're always under construction. We're always uh, uh, being formed into somebody that we're not now through hardship and trial and tears as we're carried on toward wholeness. Um, C.S. Lewis said it this way. He says, every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, that part of you that chooses, into something a little different than it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices all your life long, you are slowly turning into this central thing, this central thing into either a heavenly creature or a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God and other creatures and with itself or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness and horror and idiocy and rage and impotence and eternal loneliness. Each of us, he writes, at each moment is progressing to the one state or the other. You say, Greg, it doesn't really matter what I do. I have Jesus. No, it it absolutely matters what you do because we are all in the process of becoming. We're all with our tears building the perseverance that helps us become whole and complete. And that means we're in the battle of our lives, friends. The world isn't the way it's supposed to be, and neither are we. You know, the, the world was created one way, but, but it's fallen, and I'm fallen, and you're fallen. And that means that, that, that though we are made in God's image, it is a shattered visage. And only Christianity can account for the fact that every culture believes things ought to be a certain way, and it's not that way. We're created, but we're fallen. And so James says, you know, when, when we're tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. Uh, but rather, each person is tempted when, when we're dragged away by our own desires and enticed. And, and there, there are different interpretations of this passage. Uh, godly scholars differ, but, but, but I, I think I agree with the Swiss reformer, John Calvin's treatment here in seeing that, that my fallen sinful desires, which are always there inside of me on so many levels, that they're at work even before I face external temptation. See, I believe that whenever I feel a pull inside of my heart towards something that God has not given me, that at that point, sin is already powerfully at work, indwelling sin, powerfully at work inside of me to pull me away from God. Uh, you know, it has a lot to work with. I've got a fallen nature, fallen nurture, idols of my heart, good longings that are bent in wrong directions. You know, there's a lot inside of me, but including indwelling sin. Uh, Martin Luther, the reformer, uh, uh, who... And he had his problems, but he, he got the gospel right. He, he said the Christian has three enemies that we have to fight 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They are the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is what's telling you that you should think in its terms, in its categories, with its values, and live for yourself so that you'll be fulfilled. The devil is always there to tempt and especially to accuse, to tell you God couldn't love you. You don't measure up. The gospel's true for everybody, but not for you. And then there's the flesh, my own sin nature, the longings of my own heart bent and twisted and warped in ways that that, that were not intended in the beginning. 
What's being said here, though, is absolutely remarkable. Because what James is saying is that every one of those temptations we face, every trial, is itself an opportunity an opportunity to become a different person, an opportunity to learn perseverance. Uh, You know, every time I experience that temptation, it's an opportunity to take a step towards wholeness and completion. I I remember one friend of mine this week talking about how, you know, when he was younger, he just ran after whatever his heart longed for. So many romantic relationships, longing for this, longing for that, and, and, and how it left him so confused and tossed about. And, and now, after a few years of just walking with a degree of relational sobriety, trusting God, learning to follow him, learning to do what he says, he says he has a peace and a life that he never knew he would have because he's persevering. He's changing. But it means always taking the more difficult path that James says leads to becoming whole and complete. And friends, I can tell you this is not easy. It means waging war against the most damaged and sinful parts of my own life, doing battle against spiritual forces that are powerful, about which I know relatively little. The call of Jesus is not a call to peaceful comfort. It's a call to a lifetime of effort. i got a picture of this. Can we get that next slide? This is uh, rafting on the Zambezi River in southern Africa. Uh, the Zambezi is known. Uh, do we have any rafters? Any like whitewater people? We got a few. Um, the highest rating you can find on rapids in the United States, the most extreme rapids are rated a four or a five, which is really, really high. The Zambezi is a seven. Um, I mean, you can tell those are some significant rapids. Um, and uh, you are allowed legally to, to uh, raft it, though many governments advise against it because of the high number of fatalities. But, um, but you have to have a paid trained guide. And should you choose to raft the Zambezi, your guide will begin by giving you a certain set of instructions. Uh, first instruction, when your raft flips over, we got a picture of that. Now, notice, it's not if, it's when... Your raft flips over, he says. You will be tempted to swim to the calm waters off to the side, which are smooth and placid. But he says, do not do it because of this. That's where the crocodiles are. And they are waiting for you. And when the raft flips over, you have to stay in the rough water because the placid water to the side will kill you. Jesus is saying, I want you to stay in the turbulent rapids because if you go for safety, if you go for peace, if you go for calm and peaceful waters, there are enemies there that will destroy you spiritually. And so stay in the rapids of hardship and trial and suffering because it's also the place where Jesus is where there's spiritual growth and turbulent but eventual process in becoming whole and complete. It looks like tears. It looks like hardship. It looks like setbacks. It looks like trials. It looks like falling down and getting back up again and falling down again and having your brothers and sisters pick you up. It looks like staying in the rough waters to learn perseverance. And James is stressing that this continual process of becoming 
through sorrow, through hardship, is a work of God's grace. Did you catch that in verse 18? It began with grace. He says, God chose to give you birth through his word of truth. I chose you. God picked you. God, God decided you're going to be one of mine. It's talking about the new birth, what theologians call regeneration or being reborn when a dead soul that's not interested in God sees God as something then transformed as something beautiful, sees the goodness of God. That's all God's doing. God, you did not choose to be born again, evangelical Christians. God chose you. It was his work because it's all of God's grace. Not of merit, not our works, nothing that we can boast about. It's all gospel. It's all grace. It's Christianity 1.0 that does not need an upgrade. And this means that God chose you for his team. When Jesus was, you know, uh, 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 when Jesus was in the ring choosing who he wanted to be on his team, he chose you to take you from the worst to the first. That's Jesus. That's what he does. That's the gospel. And only it's more than being a member of his team. He, he made us family because James calls us sisters and brothers. That means we've been adopted into God's household and now have him as a father and each other as spiritual siblings. And, and, and look where that leads us in verse 9. It means even believers in humble circumstances can take pride in their high position as one who's in God's inner circle, one who's a member of eternal God's family. And, and, and that means every opportunity, every small step forward, every strained, painful bit of growth in wisdom. Every new skill in living for Christ comes from God as a gift of his grace because he says every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. Yes, you work out your salvation in fear and trembling, but because it is God who is at work in you to will and to do according to his good purpose. God is the one taking the initiative. He's the one making the investment. You know, wisdom, it talks about wisdom here. Wisdom in the Bible um, does not mean figuring out information that God hasn't given you. Uh, that's what we think of. Wisdom means, you know, God, should I take this job or that job? Tell me, give me a sign. Okay, the sun rose again today, so I'll take that job. You know, that's not, that's not biblical wisdom. The wisdom literature in the Old Testament is all about skill in godly living because that's what wisdom is, is skill in actually living for Christ and honoring God. And he's saying if you lack that, if you're in a trial, if you're in a temptation and you don't know what to do, you can cry out to God and say, Lord, I can't do this. I need your help. If your marriage is a wreck and you want to walk away, you can cry out to him and say, God, this is where I am. I need your help. If, if you're, you're struggling with an addiction or, or some massive thing going on in your life, if you're white-knuckling it, turn all that anxiety outward to God. Process it with God. That's investing your tears, and he will give you skill in godly living because every good gift comes down from him. And if you ask, he promises he will teach you and enable you to persevere through many trials. He'll pick you up. He'll take you forward. And over the course of your life on this earth, you will be transformed. You will not be the person you are now because God promises that he will do this all by his grace. So ask God because we're constantly in this process of becoming the people we are going to be moving toward completion or wholeness. And that leaves us, because we're constantly 
in a state of becoming, that leaves us as Christians in a very awkward place. I know this place. You know, that awkward age when a child is no longer a child but not yet um, an adult. When, you know, everything, the proportions are a little off. I know some of you are squirming right now. Sorry. Uh, I've been there. We've all been there. But, but spiritually, we're all there right now because we're in that awkward phase of becoming. Um, you know, that pimply, oily, sweaty, nervous kid that I was, spiritually, I'm still there. That's the Christian life. And so we're no longer what we were, but not yet what we're going to be. And, and, and that means it can be absolutely impossible to live the Christian life. Um, Igor Stravinsky was a Russian-born composer, pianist, conductor, probably the most influential composer of the 20th century. And he once um, composed a piece and, and he selected the best violinist, you know, first chair, first violinist, the best symphony, you know, the best person he could find, and gave, gave him the piece and said, um, I would like you to play this. And uh, looked it over, took it home with him, worked on it for a week or two, finally came back, to Stravinsky and said, Igor, I have tried and practiced and rehearsed and tried and fought with this and put it down and picked it back up and I cannot do it. These notes cannot be played. And Stravinsky said, I know that. I want to hear the sound of somebody trying to play these notes. And that's what Jesus is saying to you. I know it's impossible. You're not complete. I want to hear the sound of you trying to play these notes by my grace. Because we're all in the process of becoming. None of us has arrived there. So where then is our hope? The hope is in what's coming next. Because what's coming next, he says, is the harvest as you invest these tears now, they will come to fruition. He says in verse 4, you will be mature and complete, lacking nothing. It means there's an end game. It's not all futile. It's not all struggle and meaninglessness. The tears and the struggle and the trials and the pain are invested and planted and they come to fruit as wholeness. St. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3 that we all with unveiled faces behold the glory of the Lord and are being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. Uh, you know, that, that as the image of God in us is broken, we are being remade. It's, it's image renewal, being reformed in the likeness of Jesus who is the image and likeness of God. First John says, when we see him, we will be like him. The first fruits in verse 18 of all that God has created. I mean, you know what that is. When I look outside my, my window in my, my spare bedroom and, and it's May and I have not seen the sun since November. It is dark. It is cold. The sun is going down at 427 every single day and, and, and it barely even, you know, cracks the surface. It's like being in, you know, just outside of Greenland and, uh, and it's cold. And did I mention it's dark and you haven't seen the sun and it's cold and there's snow and wet drizzly rain and ice and everything is dead and then it's mid-march and you look outside and you happen to notice these little buds on the tree and then you know what's coming nothing's going to stop it because what's coming next is the flowering of renewal and new life as the whole earth 
bursts back to life again. That is the first fruits of all he has made. That is wholeness. That is completion. And that is what's coming next. A kingdom already breaking into this cosmos, which is going to overturn everything that's wrong and evil and unjust. Dostoevsky and his, his brothers Karmazov says this. He says, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for, that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions are going to vanish like a pitiful mirage, like the despicable fabrication of the moment and an infinitely small Euclidean mind of man, that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for all the comforting of resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, for all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. Because the real investment, friends, is the investment that God made himself, investing his own tears, coming to earth to suffer with us, to suffer for us, to weep tears for us, to suffer more intensely than all of humanity has ever suffered, and to do it because he loves us. Right there in verse 1, what it's all about is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because his, His was the real investment. It's what's unique to Christianity. That God made Himself vulnerable and subject to affliction, to tears, to setbacks, to hardship, to bullying, to abuse, to longing, to lack, to trials, and to loss. Investing His tears so that your tears might bring a harvest. 2018 was the worst year of my life. But as I sat every night on that terrace, feeling the abuse, feeling the hatred, feeling the slander, and feeling so many of my friends backing away, not wanting to be associated with me, as those tears of sorrow fell, They were mixed with something that I have rarely felt prior to last year. I remember in 2016, in a sermon to Missouri Presbytery, commenting that I could count on one hand the number of times I have felt God's love for me. I have believed it. I have trusted it. I have claimed it by faith because the Bible says it's true and Jesus says it's true and he says he loves me and I accept that. But I could count on one hand, maybe even half a hand, the number of times I had truly felt loved by my Father in heaven. Friends, I cannot say that anymore because every day in the midst of sorrow and pain, I found myself weeping tears of joy because I felt my Father's pleasure. I felt my Father's love. And I know that at that point that Greg Johnson is loved by God and that he is never going to let go of me. And I could not have had that without the tears and I would not have changed it for anything because last year was the year I got my soul back. Last year was the year I felt felt the love of God, and I still feel it to this very day. 2018 was also the best year of my life, and I give thanks to God in the midst of the tears because we have a God who can redeem our tears. Let's pray. Oh, our Father and our God, we do give thanks to you, and we do love you because you have been kind to us in the midst of sorrow and pain and incredible, undescribable evil that flows from the hearts of men. Yet in the midst of that, you came to us, Lord Jesus, 
and you became incarnate in suffering flesh, and you wept, and you were beaten, and you suffered because you love us, and you would not leave us without one who is eternal in solidarity with our pain. And so we consecrate to you now the elements on this table. In the name of Jesus, amen.